I was recalling a story uh, with my family a couple of days ago, something that happened to me when I was in college. Uh, I was sophomore or a junior, I can't remember, and I was sitting in my dorm room with my friends, and my phone rang. Remember, in those days, there was a, such thing as a landline. There was a phone, and it sat there. There were buttons you had to push on it, and it would ring. Remember, it would ring and kind of rattle. And so I answered it. And when I answered it, it was my church history professor. Now, this had never happened to me before. I'd never had a professor call me in my dorm room. Uh, but he calls me, and he says, Adam. And I said, yeah. He said, I have a problem. I said, what's the problem? And he said, I'm reading the paper you just submitted, and it sounds an awful lot like a paper I just read before. And I'm wondering if you have stolen from them. He said, could you come to my office and talk to me? And so I said, sure. I held up the phone, so you don't have to wait. I didn't steal from anyone, right? You were all suspecting I probably did, and that's fair. So here's what initially goes through my mind, right? First, there's this little bit of terror, like, this is scary. And then there's just a fierce anger that rises. How dare you accuse me of cheating? Maybe there's nothing worse in the world you can be accused of than cheating, right? So I'm furious. You know, I'm a 19-year-old furious kid about to go talk to a Ph.D. professor and trying to figure out what I'm going to say. And I get to his office, and he invites me in. He sits down. He says, oh, don't worry. I kept reading your paper. It's, it's original. So as it turns out, he had read the first paragraph of my whole paper, right? And the paper, uh, we were supposed to take something from uh, U.S. church history, uh, a way in which the church had mobilized for social change. So I, ta- I wrote a paper about abolition. But in the paper, one of the things we were supposed to do was relate it to the modern-day world. So, of course, when you're talking about abolition, I related it to racism in our day. Uh, So he says, well, someone else was writing about abolition, and they talked about the same exact thing. He goes, but then it dawned on me later that, yeah, what else would you (laughs) relate that to in the modern day? So there's a couple morals to this story. One, it makes you really angry when people accuse you of cheating, right? Two, if you ever become a professor... Read further than the first paragraph before you call up your student in their dorm room and accuse them of plagiarizing their paper. It's a funny story now. I I was livid. I was so furious. Have you ever been accused of cheating? Has that ever happened to you? Man, that's incredibly frustrating. What we find out in this passage in James today is that's exactly what James is accusing his readers of. Except he's not just accusing them of cheating on a term paper. He's accusing them of spiritual adultery. Wow. James chapter 4, starting in verse 4. This is what he writes. He says, You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell in us? But He gives us more grace. 
That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's going to be a great sermon, isn't it? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. What has gotten into our friend James? I mean, he was blunt all the way up to this point. Now he just sounds angry, doesn't he? Now he, every single time he wants to address these people, he has said to them, brothers and sisters. He said that countless times, right? And so here's a new thing he wants to say, and you expect brothers and sisters, and instead we get, you adulterous people. <laughs> what on earth is going on? What is James trying to do? And what I want to suggest to you is what he's trying to do is what we've been saying all throughout this book. He's trying to drive them to look deeply at their hearts and not just their external behaviors. Because, as you well know, if you were like me growing up, right? Do you ever get, do you ever get the chore of having to weed outside? Worst job in the whole world, right? I'd rather shovel snow. I'd rather paint walls. I'd rather do anything than weed outside because I don't have the patience for it. And so what I do is I just rip at the stuff, and you know how this works. You get the weed off the top of the ground, but you don't pull the roots, and it just shows up like literally the next day, doesn't it? And you're back out there doing it again. And James is trying to teach them this spiritual principle that there's something going on deep inside of you that is leading to these behaviors that if you don't address it, they're going to keep popping up maybe in different ways, but from the same source. And so James has kind of reached his point, right? He's reached the crisis point of this big sermon he's writing out. And he wants them to once and for all know what's going on. So he calls them adulterous people. But do you know, uh, I love what the NIV does, and I'm in favor of this. The NIV does gender-neutral stuff, right? So it It takes a lot of what was written in the masculine in the original language because it was the first century world, a totally different world. And it changes what men to men and women. So men back then used to refer to all people, but now the NIV is helpful, I think. It says people or men and women, so it's inclusive. I think that's right. Uh, And that happens here. But what's interesting is that the original language isn't masculine, it's feminine. (laughs) The actual, if we just did a literal translation, the translation would be you adulteresses. Now, this is important, right? The masculine and feminine sometimes is important for us to pause on because it gives us insight into what's actually going on here. And for us to understand this, we really have to understand a lot of the Old Testament, or at least the picture of what God is uh, unveiling through the Old Testament. And so God is always speaking of himself and his people as in a marriage relationship. Okay, Uh, God being the groom and his people being the bride. Feminine. Make sense? And so even when you get to like the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus, it's really set up in a marriage ceremony kind of typology. Uh, and in those days, they would have what was called the Hebrew word, the ketubah. It was a marriage contract. In other words, this is what is expected of each other in this marriage. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, is really a ketubah. It's a marriage contract. 
God and His people are getting married and this is what's expected. And that's why it is not surprising that the very first thing that's expected of them is what? You shall have no other gods beside Me. Right? In other words, you, you shouldn't fool around with other gods. You be true to Me. He's referencing spiritual, spiritual adultery right from the beginning. That to pursue other gods in place of God is in essence cheating on God in this marriage relationship between His people and in Him. But what we find throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament is what truth about the people of God? They're chronic adulteresses. They're always going after other gods. And now James wants his readers to know that they, come, they not only come from a long line of spiritual adulteresses, but they themselves are that very thing too. That they are not, to use words from the 50s and 60s, true to God. That they tend to look elsewhere for the things that God offers. And so you could rightly say that everything James has said up to this point, especially starting in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to this point, all of these things we've been dealing with from last week when we talked about human wisdom and envy and selfish ambition to the week before when we talked about the tongue and the violence that it can do, to, to the two weeks before that when we talked about partiality and, and face-valuing people. All of those things, James say, comes from somewhere. And where it comes from is a heart that has divided affections. You see this? A heart that is not true to God. So you could even say when James says we are double-minded, you could even say he also means we're double-hearted. As we, we have a heart that has affections that are pulled in various ways. So James wants to help us understand this just a little bit more. So he clarifies when he says, you adulteresses. <laughs> Thank you, James. He says, you are friends of the world. Right? Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you know world, the word world is a dirty word. right? You don't want to be associated with the world. Uh, and the church has overdone that just a little bit. Um, Yet, the Bible is pretty clear that worldliness is something to be avoided. Now, it's important that we pause and think about this. The Greek word for world is the word cosmos. It is used in all kinds of different ways. Namely, two specific ways, though. The first is when uh, the writers of the Bible want to speak about the whole of the world. Right. So think about... A super famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. Cosmos, right? Is that a negative version of the world? It is not, right? It's the whole of the created thing. The whole of the created universe. God loves it. And we ought to love it too. But the Bible also uses the the word world in a different way sometimes, like James is using it here. Specifically, the Bible tells us that there are kingdoms, two kingdoms in conflict in this existence. There is the kingdom of God, and there is the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of this world is working in opposition to the kingdom of God. And so you could say, rightly so, that the kingdom of this world is composed of a couple of things. The first being Satan, who elsewhere is labeled as the prince of this world. So kind of the leader of this world. Uh, He's also spoken of as the father, the god 
of this world. Paul writes pretty strongly that if you are not of the kingdom of God, then you are of the kingdom of the devil, Paul says, in trying to show this differentiation. We're not talking about um, the earth. We're not talking about land or nation states. We're talking about the spiritual kingdom that's working in opposition to God. But it's not, excuse me, it's not just Satan, it's of course his minions, but it's not just his minions, it largely is our flesh. The rebellious part of us that is was working towards our own rule, our own uh, self-sufficiency, our own godlikeness. That constitutes the large majority of this world. And Satan is called the prince of it because he's the powerful one that has initiated all of this, but our flesh is also working of its own accord. So when James writes this, that's what he's talking about. The spiritual reality that works in opposition to God. Now oftentimes in the church, we'll talk, we'll talk about things like, don't be worldly. And what sometimes we think that means is like, stop making questionable choices. Stop doing bad stuff. But when the Bible talks about worldliness, it really doesn't talk about it in that context. It actually talks about it deeper. It talks about heart affection. It's not about the things you do, though they aren't necessarily good. (laughs) But it's the heart affection that leads to them. So let me say it like this. It is possible for you to avoid... Lots of questionable behavior and still be incredibly worldly. Because your heart, your heart's affections are towards the things of self-rule and the spiritual opposition to the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? This is what James is talking about. He says, don't be a friend of this world. The word friend is an interesting word. Uh, We think of friends now in a pretty generic sense. Lots of people are our friends. But in the first century world of James, the word friend was a pretty specific idea. If you were somebody's friend, you basically shared life together. Your lives were fully open to each other. Your possessions were fully open to each other. It's kind of the Acts chapter 2 picture of what the church looked like. It's also why the Pharisees made such strong charges against Jesus saying you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He didn't just mean he's, he's friendly to the guy around the corner who lives a corrupt lifestyle. They literally meant you're opening your whole life up to them. You're willing to be associated with them. You're part of that thing. That was their accusation against Jesus. Now James is making a different accusation. He's saying you're opening your whole life up to the ways of this world. You're associated with it. And in some ways, you could simplify it like this. You look a whole lot more like that than you do like the kingdom of God. Does this make sense? And your actions are only testifying of the actual affections of your heart. So this idea of being a friend of the world closely relates to being uh, spiritual adulterers or adulteresses, to be literal to, to the text. Because to be a spiritual adulteress is to be an idolater, right? To worship other gods, to follow other gods. But listen to this. We don't just worship or follow other gods because we choose to, right? It's really important for us to think deeply about. 
Because we follow or we obey things that we worship. So if you're obeying or following something, you're doing it because you worship it. But there's an even more important reality. You worship something because you love it. You see this? And so you can rightly say, what you worship you will follow, but what you love you will worship. And so where does our disobedience come from? Where does our friendship with the world come from? It comes from loving the wrong things. Uh, Or more specifically, loving the wrong things more than we love God. We're double-minded, double-hearted, divided in our affections, adulterers, idolaters, friends of the world. So you might rightly ask, where does this come from? How does this all kind of keep playing out in our world? Uh, And we need to go no further than back to the chapter 1 of James, where James reminds us that all of this comes from what he calls the desires of our flesh. You remember this language James uses? He says, remember, it baits traps. And it pulls us off our course onto a whole other course, right? It traps our heart and moves our affections in other ways. Perhaps picking up on this language later on in uh, the history of the church or coming at it specifically from his own, the Apostle John talks about this reality too. Specifically in 1 John chapter 2, uh, this is what he writes. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Same kind of language as James is using. Uh, if, you lo- if you're a friend of the world, you're, you have enmity with God. You're, you're an enemy of God. Keeps going. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now, specifically in this passage, James gives us three insights into what pulls us into being friends of the world or spiritual idolaters. And this is what he says, uh, not James, excuse me, John, in 1 John chapter 2. Put up verse 16 again. See those three things? For everything in the world, three. One, the lust of the flesh. Two, the lust of the eyes. Three, the pride of life. That first phrase, lusts of the flesh, is the exact same word or phrase James uses in James chapter 1. Uh, lust could also be translated desire. Right? The fleshly desire that's in us. This inner working that pulls us away. But James adds two more things that I think makes it a little bit more robust and helps us process. He says the lust of the eyes. right? The things we see and we want the coveting, the jealousy, the envy, the things James is talking about in other parts of this sermon that he writes that pull us off course because we think we need them, we think we want them, we love them from afar, and we go after them. And then, most importantly, the pride of life. What is John referring to when he says pride of life? He's referring to, what I, simply, I think, self-sufficiency. I've got this, Uh, or as James often likes to use the word, arrogance in his book. We've got this figured out. I've trusted the gospel. I believe Jesus. We're set. I'm good. I'm going. And we get so far ahead of ourselves that we are just ready to be tripped up. Self-sufficiency means that we have no discerned need for God's help. You see this? 
And when we don't have need for God's help, then we distance ourselves from the presence of God. It doesn't mean God moves away from you. God's omnipresent. He's here. But when you have no perceived need for Him because you're self-sufficient, then you're not experiencing His grace on a daily basis through faith that is transforming and changing you. Rather, you're controlling your world. You're controlling your uh, spheres of influence. You are being, in essence, the object of your own affection (laughs) and causing yourself to live in this way. James says we are chronic adulterers, chronic idolaters, people who are friends of the world. And he says, as we mentioned already, if you're a friend of the world, then you are therefore an enemy of God. Remember, Jesus quite famously says, you cannot serve two masters. Uh, There he was talking about money, but in many ways, because of the context demanded, but in many ways, money is a figurehead for lots of different things. You cannot serve two masters. We talked and prayed earlier about the conflict that's going on, the war that's going on in Ukraine, right? You, you can't, at one point, it, simultaneously, you can't be fighting for Ukraine and fighting for Russia. It's not, it's not possible. Does it make sense? Same way if you're, you're playing a baseball game, you can't be pitching and batting at the same time. Uh, we try to convince ourselves that we can do that, but it, James is trying to cut straight to the quick and say this is impossible. There are kingdoms that co- in conflict And at any given moment, you're only fighting for one side. Does this make sense? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't switch teams, because we do that all the time. But James wants us to know that when we're fighting for one, we're actually fighting against the other. That when our affections are for this world, when we are pursuing other gods, we're actually, listen to this, doing violence against the true God. There's enmity between us. We become enemies. Now, if you are correctly hearing everything I'm saying, or at least as I think James is trying to say it, then you are arriving at a moment of despair. (laughs) Right? And I think that's right. I think that's exactly where James wants us to be. Like, uh, I've got no chance. Because everything James has just said, I'm going to eliminate you from the equation. Everything James has just said is true of me. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's just true of me, right? You know, I serve God, but then I serve myself. <laughs> I'm a friend of God, but then I'm a friend of the world. I'm a chronic adulterer, a chronic idolater and adulterer. What hope is there for people like us? James, uh, there's an interesting verse in James chapter 4, verse 5. Did you, did you notice it? It kind of sticks out because it kind of feels like it doesn't make sense. It talks about, in our translation, it talks about God being jealous for His Spirit in us. Uh, there's actually two very different ways to translate that verse. And I want to suggest to you that, that this translation is, is a much more literal translation of what's happening there and actually gives us deeper insight into what James is saying. He says, or do you think in vain that the Scriptures say that the Spirit He caused to dwell in us yearns with envy? Do you see this? Uh, we, we feel like this is a better translation because the word that is translated uh, envy or jealousy 
uh, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout James' writing, it's always used in a negative way. But in the translation that's in our NIV Bibles, it's used of God being jealous, of course, which wouldn't be a negative thing. And of course, God is jealous. That's a truth that's preached all through the Old Testament. God is jealous for us. But I think this is the right translation because it gets at the envy that we have. It fits in the rest of the context. And what specifically it helps us understand, and I think what James is trying to say is, all this stuff, this divided heart affection, these external behaviors, this doesn't come from God. Right? It's like, do you, re- do you in vain read in the Scriptures that somehow this is the Spirit's fault that this is happening? In other words, you're fighting against what the Spirit is trying to do in you. And then he comes to the most important part of this whole passage of Scripture. Where he says, but God gives more grace. Now this should be astounding, right? Because you are meant to be on the heaps of despair right before that verse comes. How will God respond to this? And James says, with more grace. This is incredible. This is the Gospel that we celebrate every Sunday when we get together. That God continues to pursue chronic adulterers like us. Or at least like me. Chronic idolaters like me. People who are double-minded, double-hearted, whose affections are pulled in different directions. God isn't running from me. He's running to me. Trying to constantly restore me and remind me of His love and His grace. It seems to me probably in the mind of James when he's writing this Gospel truth is the famous story from the Old Testament in the book of Hosea. Some of you might be familiar with this. Hosea was a prophet. And uh, every once in, you know, we, sometimes we think God gives us bad assignments here on earth. Right? You ever think that? Like, why, why, do I, why do I have to be in this situation right now? Read some of the Old Testament prophets and you're going to feel a lot better about what you have to do. Like, this is the things God says to the Old Testament prophets. You're going to go preach to these people and none of them will listen to a thing you say. Right? This is a constant thing he says. Then read Ezekiel. God's like, what I want you to do is shave half your head, lay down in the middle of the road and pretend to be dead. Right? Uh, and then I want you to collect excrement and cook a meal over top of it. And all these things he does because they're symbolic. They're trying to act out things that are happening. Well, a crazy thing that God asks the prophet Hosea to do is I want you to marry a prostitute. A serial adulteress. Right? Uh, not because... You know, God is trying to be matchmaker here, but He wants Hosea to act out how God is towards His people. Hosea takes the place of God trying to redeem and restore His people. And Hosea's wife takes our place as His people. So let's kind of read through the first chapter together. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman, an adulteress. Have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Right? This is what we've been talking about. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Listen to this. The Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So listen, kids. If you think your parents didn't give you the best of names, check out some of these names that are about to come up. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6. Gomer conceived again 
and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruchamah, for I will no longer show love to Israel. Imagine if your name was, I will no longer show love to Israel, right? That I should at all forgive them. Verse 7, yet I will show love to Judah. I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. Verse 8, after that, uh, after she weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. What is he going to call this son? The Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Imagine having this name. What's your name? Oh, my name is, uh, I am not his people and he's not my God. Then the Lord said, oh, excuse me, verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand of the seashore. This verse 10 should blow your mind. Which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. See, the family of Hosea was meant to be a living contradiction. Wait, your son is called not my son, and yet he's your son? Exactly. Right? Wait, your daughter is called someone I don't love, and yet you love her and and dote on her and show her all kinds of affection? Exactly. Because God responds to serial adultery and serial idolatry with more grace. And that changes everything. So then the question James wants us to ask is, How do we receive it? We know, well, I should pause and say, if you've never received the grace of God for the first time, if you've never embraced what Jesus has done for you on the cross and through His resurrection, wiping away the sins of your divided heart and, and the adultery and the idolatry, you can do that now. You can do that now in a very simple way by, by acknowledging to God your need for Him and by receiving what Jesus has done. But for many of us, that's something that we have done in the past. And and it's not something that has to be done over and over again. And yet, we continue to be people who have divided hearts. So what do we do about that? And James says, you do the same thing you did back then. This shouldn't surprise us, because this is what all the New Testament writers say time and time again. But he says, you've got to keep humbling yourself in order to keep receiving my grace so that you are continually transformed. You see this? Remember that little verse that James quotes? He says, listen, God opposes the proud, but He comes to the humble. James says, you've got to humble yourself. Now, oftentimes in the church, we talk about God humbling us. right? And that happens sometimes. But way more often than that, the Bible actually speaks of us humbling ourselves as a means of responding to God's grace. That is, that it is a posture you are to take rather than a God forcing Himself on you. And so if you're just waiting for something to happen, then in the same way God's waiting for you to take the posture of need. And so you rightly say, okay, Adam, but how do I do it? And James is careful to tell us. He gives us several lines of what seem like commands here. But I want to suggest to you, they together form one biblical word. Not literally in the text, but in their concept. And that's the word repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It means a literal 180 degree turn. A change 
from what you were into what you will be. And James, as all the New Testament writers tell us, is that this is an ongoing process. Repentance is part of who we are and what we do. So I think we can see it in three ways in this passage. The first is that James says, we repent by changing our minds. So what's the first thing James says in terms of humbling yourself? He says, submit therefore to God. The word submit, uh, hupatasso is the Greek word. It means to rank yourself underneath. It is a military term. To recognize God is God and I am not. Right? It is a cognitive awareness and reception. That God is God and I am not. And therefore, that God is actually worthy to be followed, to be obeyed, to be worshipped, to be loved. And all the other things that I'm giving my affection to, whether they be good, bad, or indifferent, are not as worthy as God is for my affection. James says, change your mind about what you think is worthy of your affection. Then he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Fascinating language, isn't it? I want to suggest to you again that James uses the word devil on purpose, diablos, the Greek word. Uh, it's the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word satan, Satan. And he uses it on purpose because Satan is the prince of this world, but I think that he also uses it as a placeholder. right? That he doesn't just mean the devil in this instance. He means all that the devil controls. He means this world. And he means your flesh. Uh, we remember the theological truths about the devil. First is, the devil is real. The devil is not a figment of our imagination. He's not a cartoon character. right? The devil is real. The devil is powerful. The devil is convincing. The devil uh, is, is an accuser. But the devil is a single being. And the devil is not omnipresent. Therefore, the devil can be in one place at one time. And therefore, affecting a small sphere of things. What makes the devil so powerful is that our flesh works (laughs) in association with him. So is it possible that you will need to resist the literal devil at some points in your life? The answer is, I suppose it's possible. But I have always worked under the assumption that the devil has bigger fish to fry than Adam Eshbaugh. Now that may not be true. But at least the devil is on the move, right? The other, another verse in Peter says the devil is roaming around, prowling, looking for. Now, I don't say that to tell you to let your guard down because your flesh is just as worthy an opponent and just as vicious and just as deceitful and just as accusatory and just as, as uh, able to pull you off the course. And so James is saying you've got to resist it. Now, listen. If you're anything like me, you say, Adam, that's impossible. It's so hard to resist. But notice how James says this. While he's telling you to resist, he's actually telling you that that's not the first thing you do. You submit to God and resist. Because here's how I think it works. I think that your act of submitting to God actually is also an act of resisting the flesh and the devil. You see this? If you are trying to simply resist not in a posture of submitting to God, you cannot resist. But if your posture is simply to submit to God, you will naturally resist. 
even if you aren't trying to, because you can only serve one master. Does this make sense? That is that when you say, you've heard this before, when you say yes to something, you're actually saying no to a million other things. Right? When you say yes to God, you're saying no to a million other would-be gods. In the same way, when you say yes to another God, you're naturally saying no to the true God. So James is linking these two things together. We're not out there on a mission to resist the devil. We're out there on a mission to submit to God. Because when we do, we resist the devil. And listen to what it says. He flees. This is incredible, isn't it? Why does he flee? Because you resisted him so hard? No, because you're sitting at the feet of a God who actually is omnipresent and omnipotent. You see this? We fight the devil in our own power. We fight our flesh in our own power. We were never meant to. We're simply meant to submit to God and allow God to do the work that needs to be done. Change your mind. But it's not just about changing your mind. It's about changing your heart. This is what James is after all the time. So the next phrase he says is, come near to God and he will come near to you. Or draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Listen to the language again. James is is this way. He said, humble yourself, right? He's now saying, you must draw near to God in order for God to draw near to you. Now, if you've listened to any of my preaching for any length of time, you're sitting to yourself, well, that doesn't jive. Because all you tell us all the time is God's pursuing us all the time. And so now you're saying, he's not going to come near to us unless we come near to him. Uh, And I say, James means something different. You can't do anything to make God come any closer to you than he already is, right? The picture of God is that he stands right at the door of your heart and knocks. However, if you draw near to him, he naturally will draw near to you because you will become aware of how close he is and how much he's working on behalf of you. And your heart affection will be ignited for him. Do you see this? So this is not about, okay, if you show God that you want Him, then He'll come get you. That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is, if you respond to the truth that God has come for you, it's going to awaken your heart to a deep affection for who God is, and it will only increase the intimacy with which you engage with God. As you draw close to Him, He draws close to you. And James says, and if you're going to do it, you need to cleanse yourself, right? Approach him with clean hands and a clean heart, James says. And now we're like, wait a minute, this is challenging because all of this other stuff, it feels like we could do, but now this cleansing stuff is challenging again, and and rightly so. I think here James is pulling on a pretty famous psalm, Psalm 24, where the psalmist writes this. It says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Now stop right there. And you're saying, well, wait a minute, we already dealt with this. We're guilty of all of these things. So that means we can't ascend the hill? Exactly. That's the problem, right? Goes on. Does it go on or is that it? That's it. All right. That's the problem, right? But this is the gospel we celebrate. This is the more grace of God that we embrace. That God, in responding to his people who are unable to climb the hill to be where he is, instead descends the hill to be where we are, specifically 
in the person of Jesus. We celebrate in the Advent season, the incarnation of Jesus, moving into our mess to restore and redeem everything that is there. Who can ascend the hill of God? There's only one answer to that. Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can ascend the hill of God. And the only way you and I are getting up there is if he agrees to give you a piggyback ride. Right? And guess what? That's what the resurrection means. And so we are all climbing the hill on the back of Jesus. So what James is referring to here is not make yourself clean in a ritualistic way, but he's saying you've got to apply your gospel identity to who you are. You've got to confess the reality of your brokenness. But you'll you'll remember the Greek word for confess, hamalageo, it literally means to say the same thing as. So confession is not just agreeing with God that you're broken. It's agreeing with God that you're redeemed. It's not just agreeing with God that you can't climb the mountain. It's agreeing with God that you're climbing the mountain on Jesus' back. You see this? The confession is the bad and the good all in one. Confession is literally declaring over yourself gospel identity in the face of human brokenness. That's what James is saying. And then he gets to that powerful moment. So mourn and weep. If any of you have any kind of joy, get rid of it. (laughs) Start sobbing like crazy people, right? So great for sermons. What's his point? His point is exactly what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Was Jesus saying it's a good thing to suffer loss in this world? No, it's not what he was talking about. He was talking about mourning over your brokenness. Mourning over your inability to climb the mountain. Coming to grips with human limitations. Discovering your need for God. And mourning over it. Realizing that the only way you get up the mountain is that Jesus descended the mountain and took on our death for us. This should grieve us. It should burden our hearts. Not in a debilitating way, but in a way that deepens our affection for Him. Can I tell you just just an honest truth? Unless and until the sin that you engage in deeply grieves your heart, you will not find transforming victory over it. I'm not suggesting anyone's going to become perfect in this life, but I'm telling you, if you poo-poo your sins, you're going to keep living in them. But if they grieve you, and if you mourn over them, and if you feel the pain of Christ on behalf of you, it mobilizes you into the grace of God that is transformative. This is what James is talking about. Changing your heart. A heart that longs to be with God. That mourns over the ways in which we have sought other gods. That has brought death on Jesus. And that longs to be where God is. And then lastly, repentance is a change of life. Change of how we live. He finishes up by saying exactly what he started this section with. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Lift you up means to exalt you. I don't think he's talking about a state of worship. I think he's talking in the context of the mountain. Right? How do you get up the mountain? 
you realize you can't. You discover your need for God and you climb on the back of Jesus and He takes you up. I've never been skiing, but the glory of skiing is that you can ride up on the ski lift, right? Imagine if you had to cross-country ski back up the mountain. But we live that way. And we wonder why we're struggling to gain victory over the things that are happening in our life. We wonder why um, we're not experiencing single-minded maturity that James calls us to. And the reason is because we haven't discerned the depth of our need for God. We haven't humbled ourselves. And in humbling ourselves, grabbed on to the grace of God. And in so doing, honestly before God, declared who we are and spoke the truth of our Gospel identity over ourselves. And in so doing, pulled nearer to God in a deeper heart affection. Taking on a posture of submission to God that then lives God's way. New creation life. Listen, the point of James' message here uh, could be one of two things. My guess is, in some levels, it's both. The first is, he's calling them to repentance in the moment. Like, hey, you've done some messing up here. You ought to repent. But my guess is it's broader than that. He's not saying, how dare you speak to them like that? You need to repent. Maybe that's happening. What he's actually telling them is the path that leads to single-minded maturity, the path out of double-mindedness and double-heartedness is a path of ongoing repentance. It is that the Christian life could be defined, the, the growth in Christian life could be defined as continuing repentance. Owning the ways in which we have followed would-be gods and turning our minds and hearts toward the right God and following Him. We're asked to do this nearly every moment of every single day. This is how you embrace the grace of the Gospel and move forward. You literally lay down your affections for would-be gods and embrace a rightful affection for the true God. Can I pray with you?